This is Ordinary Acts, conversations about how to pursue positive change in our city in the everyday stuff of life. I'm Ben, and today my co-host Emily and I interview Nika Spaulding. She is the resident theologian at St. Jude Oak Cliff, and she's also one of those people that not only lives in a place, uh, but is committed to knowing and being deeply connected to the place in which she lives. So I think you'll enjoy hearing about how those two worlds, those two spheres of her life connect. three babies and all my friends are now having more aunt experiences and I think my brother's done and I'm very upset about this and he refuses to have more children. I don't understand why it's not my choice. He keeps saying it's his choice, but that doesn't sound right to me. So yeah. Maybe you could just like promise him like 50 bucks a month. Be like, look, 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 I get it. It's probably a financial thing that's stopping you. Let me, I'll help you out. I'll send you 50 bucks. And then I will sign an agreement. If I sign an agreement that I will sponsor lunches for this child. Yeah. That means you you have to have another one. You too can sponsor a child for 50 bucks a month. I'm going to get some Sarah McLaughlin music playing yeah. in the background when I try to convince him. Yeah. I mean, I would do it if he would agree to a child. So we do ant camp in the summers where I take the kids for a week. I think I'd have to promise two or three ant camps mm-hmm. if you ended nice. up with four kids, but I'm willing. I'm willing. So that's hilarious. Well, we have lots of lawyers. If you want to put something in writing, we, <laughs> true. we can make this happen for you. Yeah. I love it. Like, you want to do what's that? the point of having a staff full of attorneys if you can't make it work for you? You know? <laughs> Yeah, that's, I agree. That's the only thing I care about is blackmailing my brother into children. So. <laughs> uh, that's a soundbite if I've ever heard one. Um, uh, yeah, so the voice you're hearing is Nika Spalding, and we are very excited to have uh, her on. So tell us a little bit about how you um, how you got to Dallas and how you, because you're not from here. Yep. Right? Um, yep. So tell us where you're from and, and just how you ended up in Dallas. Yeah. So in my early childhood, we moved around a lot because my stepdad at the time was in the military. So new home every two to three years. And then when we were about when I was 13, not we, when I was 13, the rest of my family's their respective ages, uh, we landed in Oklahoma and really spent the rest of my childhood there, um, except for the summers, spent my summers in L.A. with my aunt and uncle. So went to the University of Oklahoma, thought I was going to be in medical school. um, But the sight of blood and vomit to this day makes me near pass out. So you would think. Mm. Yeah, an intelligent individual would go not a career, good career path, but how far into your degree were you? Like, was it like the dissecting the frog, or was it later oh, yeah. on? You're like, oh yeah, no, we were. Well, sadly, we dissected cats. I'm sorry, Clive. He can hear oh. me right now, my cat. But I was 90 hours in studying for my MCAT. I mean, I was there, and then I went and uh, actually was shadowing a pediatrician, and this little kid came in with swollen eyes, oh. and he had to like pry them open with these clamps. And I like went weak in the knees and like fell against the wall. And he's like, I don't need nope. two patients in nope. this room. And I was like, well, then I better step out. And so, uh, yeah, so at that point I was like, he, he was so kind, but he goes, you know, this isn't a job, it's a calling. And you may want to consider if you're called to this. <laughs> That's I was great. like, I got you, Dr. Wilbur, I'll drop out tomorrow. So finish my degree. Uh, and I, at that time, I think people would have told you I was destined to go to ministry, but I didn't really grow up in the church. And so I didn't have a concept of what ministry could be. And so I, I really dragged my feet on that. But there was an opportunity to work at a residential care facility for troubled teens. And since I didn't know what was next for me, that seemed like a good next move. So I did that for a year in Branson. And while I was there, these kiddos 
I mean, they had a million problems, and yet we're still asking really deep theological questions that I just couldn't answer. And I would have, I would have told you I was probably farther along in understanding the Bible than some of my co- colleagues and peers. Um, and I just fell woefully unprepared to answer these kids' questions, and I felt like they deserved better answers than what I had. And so I, I didn't really know what seminary was, but I remember somebody told me about seminary and suggested DTS, and which is Dallas Theological Seminary. And I just remember thinking I didn't want to live anywhere cold. <laughs> so that really limited me to Fuller and DTS, and I applied to DTS and got in. And so in January of 2009, I moved to Dallas to start graduate school, not having any clue what I would do with it and what I, what my long-term goal would even be or job. Um, and then came and fell in love with theology and learning. And, um, I'm actually going back for more. I'm going for a doctorate in the fall. So yeah, I just can't get enough of school and learning. And so, um, yeah, so came to Dallas to do that and have really stayed been here. Gosh, what is that? Like 12 years now, which seems like, it seems like it's been like five years, but this is home now. So I love being here. That's cool. And did you know, I mean, what did you know about Dallas prior to moving here, if anything? And what what surprised you about Dallas when you got here? Yeah, I think I knew that Dallas is where each year in October, OU and Texas played football. That was the extent of what I knew. (laughs) I knew there was a mall with a uh, skating rink in it. And that was honestly truly it. And uh, when I first moved to Dallas, I actually lived with a family in Highland Park. And so that's a very different different Dallas than, um, yeah. and I think what surprised me about Dallas is Dallas is a big name, but everybody in Dallas knows you don't live in Dallas. You live in Lakewood or you live in mm-hmm. Oak Cliff or you live in, you know, and I think that's some of what surprised me was just the pockets of Dallas and how incredibly different they are both by ethnicity, socioeconomic classes, all of that. And so I, I started learning that when I told people I lived in Highland Park, that meant something to them mm. more than what was true about me. Cause I was living in a back house for free and I was a poor seminary student. And so, uh, that was really surprising because growing up in Oklahoma city, it it's, I'm sure it's in some ways that that way, but not as drastic as it is in Dallas. And then you, so you started in Highland Park and with the qualification of I'm a parky by association, not by choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and started then working Dallas. for, yep, North, well, really Richardson, honestly, actually, technically Garland. Uh, so we, yeah, lived in the Garland city limit. And I actually loved that. I would go to their like city council meetings and I was official <laughs> ambassador for the city of Garland for like two years, y'all. And um, what? I know <laughs> I loved it. Uh, Garland. People sleep on it, but especially downtown Garland, Intrinsic Barbecue. Go check it out, y'all, especially if you like collard greens. So I lived there for um, four years and really lived there because it was the only place I could afford, you know, being a single woman in ministry just starting out. Uh, I remember my realtor and I kind of threw a map up at Dallas and said, okay, where can where can I afford to live that's still within a reasonable distance of, of Watermark, which is where I was working at the time. Uh, and ended up loving it. I mean, loved where I lived. And I would say it was more blue collar. And Garland's actually surprisingly very diverse ethnically. Um, and then left Watermark to come plant this church in Oak Cliff. And that drive almost killed me, y'all. I mean, the amount of rage I felt driving from Richardson to Oak Cliff in traffic. I was like, I am not sanctified. I should not <laughs> be planting a church. Uh, so sold my house in Richardson without knowing where to go and was really 
I lived in a friend's couch for a little bit. I lived with one of our parishioners at our church who is a supporter of ACT, an incredible woman named Vonnie Gant, Dr. Vonnie Gant, and then finally found my house um, in the Cedar Crest area, which I love because you guys are coming my direction to do the work of ACT, and I could not be more excited about it. So live now in 75216 by the zoo near the Peacocks. If y'all are from Dallas, people will know what that means in Dallas, hopefully. Yep. Dallas has a lot of odd pockets of wandering Animals. fauna. <laughs> yeah. Like it's very strange. <laughs> like how, uh, there's more than one and I don't understand exactly yeah. why why that is. Um, okay, so your title, and I am lucky enough to go to St. Jude Oak Cliff and have gotten to know you over the last couple of years. What? This um, is nepotism. How did you end up on this So podcast? cool. I know, <laughs> yeah, right? wow. Nika, how did you end up here? Did what you get cool my world. Venmo, Emily? Did you get the money that I sent <laughs> Just under the table. It's a private, yeah. private transaction. Um, but yeah, so your title is resident theologian, which I agree is probably one of the cooler titles out there. Um, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, what that actually looks like day to day. I feel like a lot of people think of people who work in a church and you're a pastor, a priest, a women's minister, a children's, you know, or music ministry. So what is a resident theologian? And then what does that look like within St. Jude Oak Cliff? Yeah, I love it. I love my job because there's rhythms, but not day to day. And so I'd say the general rhythms of what a resident theologian does is I really look at the church calendar and a lot of stuff is getting in preparation for that. And so a lot of what I do is help support Martin if he is preaching or if he's or I will preach or we will co-preach together um, and we get ready for those high holy days together typically. Um, and then one of the coolest things, I, I love teaching the Bible, but one of the things I also love to do is get to teach kind of whatever I want out of the Bible. And so being the resident theologian, I get to teach classes that are both biblically based. You know, there are times that like we went through the book of Amos not too long ago, um, or I'll do a study on a topic. And so this summer we went through justice. We've done the essentials of the faith. Um, I'm even like looking at my desk right now and it's like covered in books. And so a lot of what I do is uh, read a lot to be prepared theologically for questions people have, um, or to just address things that, um, I have to know both the history of where we got to where we are as a church and what is orthodox and what is true and right, and then how to apply that to what's currently happening. And so my job requires me to not only plunge the depths of history, but to also be very aware of whatever current events are happening so that I can answer those questions or, or preach to folks to be able to care for them in that way. Um, and then, Resident theologian is a catch-all title. Since there's just two of us pastorally, I also get the joy of doing other pastoral things. Like this last weekend, I got to officiate a wedding. The weekend before that, I spoke at a conference. Um, I meet with folks pastorally. And so my job is more like pastor with a heavy dose of theology mixed in, um, which is what I love to do. I love that. Like before, it's so crazy because like we used to do intinction for <laughs> communion, which meant you take the cracker and you dip it in the cup. And in light of COVID, I'm like, we're never going back to that. Like there's going to be an institutional memory of at least 20 years of people being like, I'm not sticking my hand in this yeah. cup. <laughs> but getting to serve the the sacraments to people is one of my favorite things. And one of the reasons I love it at St. Jude is you really do get to know, like Emily, I say your name when I serve you. And I think that's yeah. something really like sweet for me and hopefully sweet for you as well that I get to know and love the people that I get to serve. And so, um, so the day to day could be anything from reading. Like right now I'm going to be speaking at a chapel coming up at my alma mater. And so it's on ecology in the Bible. And so I think it's something I can speak to, but I want to be uh, really proficient. So I've got a couple of books I'll read on that soon. Um, so yeah, a lot of reading, a lot of teaching and a lot of getting to serve and love folks as we lead the church at St. Jude. Yeah. So 
What, how do you see your role as a pastor, as a resident theologian, kind of as a leader in the church in the city of Dallas? You know, I mean, obviously that includes our church and the people that attend it, but outside of kind of that small group of people, how do you view your role within the city? What does that look like? Um, what is it like to be a pastor, resident theologian in Dallas? Um, how do you like pursue truth and all that you do within kind of the system of a city? Yeah, I love it. I think twofold. So specifically to St. Jude, one of the things that as a resident theologian that I was tasked with doing is coming up with a mission statement. And then the follow-up to that is finding organizations that share those same missions and share that same emphasis. And so one of the things that's really important to St. Jude is justice. There's a reason why it's in our mission statement. Um, And we would define justice the same way Tim Keller does, which is giving people what they are due, whether that's uh, punishment, protection, or care. And so it's more than just like when you say justice, Justice, people tend to think police, courts, things like that, but it's so much more than that. And so one of the things that I do is maintaining relationships with people like ACT, maintaining relationships with um, Abide Women's Services, which is a, a women's pregnancy resource center down here, maintaining relationships with Salvation Army, Mission Oak Cliff, and other organizations. So that's part of what I do. But one of the unique things that I do specifically that I believe that God has called me into is... Um, I believe that because I love Dallas and I love Dallas, y'all, when I'm gone from Dallas for a really long time and I see the skyline, I like tear up. Like I actually love this city. And it's why I feel like I can say she gets on my nerves all the time too. And like, there's so much wrong with Dallas. And one of the unique roles I think I have played in this is because of my emphasis on justice and my emphasis on learning is I've developed a class where I talk about the history of Dallas, how Dallas was founded, uh, so much of her past, which with racial uh, inequity, how we got the neighborhoods that we got, where we continue to see systemic injustice. And that's a class we did early on at St. Jude. And that's also a resource that we've just made available to people. Um, and I think being white, I feel called to be in these spaces where I educate other white folks about the inequity in the city. Um, because it's interesting, like, depending on where people live, like I remember telling somebody who just moved to Dallas that we have, a, you know, we have a very large homeless population. And they were like, really? And I was like, where do you haunt? Like, where do you drive? Like, how have you not? And I remember giving them just like places to go visit and organizations to look at. Um, And, you know, this most recent freeze that we had, I think it brought to the forefront of a lot of people's attention. And so I was trying to be a little bit more active on social media to say, guys, everybody's cold in their homes. Now you got to think about what are we going to do with our friends who are out on the streets? And thankfully we have places like our calling and Genesis women's shelter and Kay Bailey Hutchinson that opened up. But I think some of my unique role in this city is to tell the truth about this city that I love. And Dallas has a lot of polite racism and a lot of polite passing over the sins of our past. And I think it's important that if we're going to have a shared future, we have to tell the truth about our past. And that's some of the role that I I try to play both as a a resident theologian as well as just a person who loves and cares about the people in this city. This episode is sponsored by Broadcat. They make compliance training that prosecutors look for. No more chasing compliance training trends that keep getting more expensive and complex. Broadcat makes customizable, practical, visual tools that teach your employees how to do their jobs compliantly. Find out what the DOJ looks for in its compliance training by visiting thebroadcat.com or just Google Broadcat That's broadcast without the S to download a detailed interview with a Department of Justice former compliance expert. And if you're listening and wondering how you can support this show and Axe work, please consider becoming a justice partner. Not only will you receive a monthly newsletter, book resources, and other special connection opportunities with others in the justice partner community, but you'll help continue our work to make neighborhood safety a normal reality for everyone. 
Sign up today at actforjustice.org. Yeah, I, I think it's really, really interesting. I really enjoy hearing just your perspective on your how you see your role in the in in the church, and then how you see how that extends out into the community. What I'm curious of, and this is because I have my own history, um, w- sort of within in vocational ministry. Um, what role do you see the church, sort of at large, not just St. Jude, playing in a city like Dallas when it comes to justice um, and equity and and the establishment of of those two realities. I think one of the things that I noticed about Dallas is because of the advent of technology and how there's a church, I mean, in some ways a mega church on every corner. Uh, in Dallas, we're really spoiled in that we have started to make certain things ultimate, things like how good is your pastor at preaching, how good is your young adults ministry and things like that. And then those distinctives became more of a division rather than a place of unity. And so I've been reflecting on Philippians 2 quite a bit lately, just because I had an opportunity to teach on it and I've been spending some time in it. And in that Philippians 2 passage, Paul basically tells the Philippians who are obsessed with status, who are obsessed with their divisions, they're obsessed with all these things. And he's saying to them, listen, you're pursuing after vain glory and you need to consider the needs of others more important than yourself. And he's not calling for one, he's not calling for sameness. He's calling for oneness within the church of Philippi, who is stratified and who has all the ethnic tension and the class tension, all that that Dallas has. I think the only way forward for Dallas to really, the to actually make an impact on the needs that we see is for more ecumenical partnering together. And I think that's going to require people to humble themselves and lay down their denominational preferences, to lay down their denominational distinctives. I think there's a competitive nature to the churches in Dallas and like a zero sum game. If you're getting Ben to come to your church, that means Ben didn't come to our church. That means you won and we lost. And that's not of the Lord. There is one church. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one Christ in whom we have encouragement, one father in whom we have love. And so I think that the certain churches, one of the things that we've seen is so many times white churches try to throw money to make a problem go away, but they don't understand the neighborhood. They don't understand the people they're trying to serve. And yet there's local churches who have been around for 50, 175 years that together, if you took the resources of these white churches along with the relational investment and the long-term stability of these churches that have been in these neighborhoods, then real good, I think, could be accomplished. And so I think what it's going to take is to actually return to a real belief that we are one church and to put aside our denominational preferences and our things that have kept us from being united. I think it's going to require that those who have power, give it away. Those who have wealth, give it away and not give it away with an asterisk saying, you have to sign our same statement of these particulars. I think if your church can agree on the Nicene Creed and my church can agree on the Nicene Creed, we can do mission together. And we might have we might have doctrinal differences that mean we're not going to plan a church together, but that doesn't mean we can't serve the homeless, that we can't root out sex trafficking, that we can't put clothes on the folks that need it. And so I think a lot of that is going to require people like me, frankly, to stop building our own little towers and our own little fiats and instead start saying, how can, how can we serve with others? Which is, and this is not to brag on St. Jude. This is not me. This is to brag on Martin Bond, who's the head pastor of our church. But we have a policy at St. Jude. We just won't start a ministry that already exists because that's just going to pull resources away. And so in Dallas, y'all know this, North Texas Giving Day is coming up. I like ACT because y'all are unique. And I mean this because You might say, I care about the homeless. You're going to find 20 different homeless ministries you can give to on North Texas Giving Day, maybe more. And while that's not necessarily a bad thing, the question becomes, what if those resources were 
brought together and compounded in a more synergistic way. And I, and that's going to require humility and a mission mindedness that means saying Jude's not going to get the credit for some of what the Salvation Army Oak Cliff's going to do. And we may be the one funding it, but they're on the front lines. And are we okay with that? Are we going to be okay with that? And for a long time, I haven't seen that. I think churches in Dallas like to put their flag on places and require the nonprofits that they work with to bend their way. And I just think we should be bending to the way of Jesus. And Jesus shows us the way is always down. He's always climbing down. And even to death on a cross, climbing down. And I think if we could bring back that radical humility, we'd see a lot of good done for the folks that really need it. And I'm hopeful. I think COVID and and even the freeze exposed some things. So I'm hopeful for the city that people are seeing that. But um, I'm also a born cynic. So, you know, I hope could erode quickly, but yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm a realist. I'm not really a cynic. That's I'm, I'm a realist. But anyways. Do you think that over the last year with COVID, I mean, obviously there's been so much separation and so much isolation. Have you as, you know, a pastor of a church seen people from across denominations, across, I mean, even like regional boundaries coming together? Or do you feel like, like, you know, to solve problems, to serve our city, or do you feel like it's just exasperated the problems that you've mentioned? I think that people, now that we're a full year in, I think pastors are realizing we were really, there's a lot of problems here. And I think that we're becoming to realize, like, I think anybody who thought they could save Dallas, hopefully by now realizes they're not going to be able, one church cannot save Dallas. And so I do think there is that realization, but I think COVID also hit churches financially. And that's what's so hard is when times get lean that you don't, you don't change your posture of generosity. You don't change your posture of abundance. And so one of the things the elders did at St. Jude, which I was really proud of them for, is when we came together to talk about our budget, we agreed we would give all the money away at the front end of the fiscal year because things might have gotten tighter as COVID raged on. And we wanted to make sure that we were still as committed to being generous, even if the same amount of money didn't come in. And that was something that I was I was challenged by that. And I actually, when I, I just did my taxes for 2020 and I gave all my giving in March and I remember thinking I better do it now. Cause I may, I may panic and I may start tightening up these purse strings. And I was like laughing at how, like literally in March, I was all my, my giving for the year, except for my, my monthly tide. But I still have to say, I think that there are many folks that are seeing the scope of the problem and how it's big. I mean, the food lines are long here. Um, there are organizations like Four Oak Cliff that I actually took a sabbatical in the middle of COVID. And I spent a Wednesday morning just loading up cars with with food at Four Oak Cliff. And uh, they and Mission Oak Cliff is somebody that we've went and spent some time with. And they're saying they're seeing so many more folks that are in need. And so I think churches are seeing that and responding to that and going, OK, we need to continue these efforts. But I also think people are financially struggling and it's causing a more insular look. You know, how can we keep our staff? How can, and those are, those are tough decisions. I don't, I don't pretend to think those are easy decisions, but um, I've seen both. I'm hopeful though, that people are going to recognize like Salvation Army Oak Cliff has been killing it. Mission Oak Cliff has been killing it. And so to want to give to them is, is an easy decision to make. Our calling has been killing it. And so I, that's my hope is that people individually are going to recognize, Hey, I got a stimulus check and I didn't really need it. And so what can I do with this money? And I think that's a good challenge for folks to think about and how they're going to continue to be generous because folks are are really hurting. And I'm sure y'all are seeing that in act. I mean, it feels like even as COVID's continued on, the amount of crime has skyrocketed. And even that is something that uh, it's going to take more than just act, right? But it, we definitely need you guys on the front lines helping with that stuff. So I live in one of those neighborhoods and there's just more and more gunshots and you just wonder, gosh, 
Is this how people yeah. are dealing with stress right now? Cool. Nika, this has been really great. I mean, I knew it would be. I know you. <laughs> I know uh, if we gave you an hour, you would fill it with lots of great stuff. I guess my last piece, my last question is, is how would you encourage other folks? Um, how do you encourage other folks in terms of getting involved in the city, continuing that process and getting even more involved than maybe they ever have been? Yeah, I think that's so good. I would say Dallas has got 99 problems. So find the one that you're uniquely gifted to do and fix. And not that I would never, of course, encourage a savior complex. But I think one of the things I do love about Dallas is because of the complexity of this city, you know, I've I've worked in the Dallas County prisons. I've gone and volunteered at our calling. I've done, um, you know, whether maybe women are your passion or the homeless or children or refugees or sex trafficking. Dallas has all of that, all of that. Um, one of my really good friends runs a ministry for professional women. I mean, and so I'd say... Spend some time with the people that know you best and explore what it is that God has uniquely gifted you to do. And in the same way that I think it's important that I do classes on the history of Dallas, I don't think that's everyone's role. And I would encourage them people to go, okay, this is what I seem to be good at. This is a this is an area that I'm passionate about. And then go find a ministry that has a long presence here, uh, is a ministry that focuses on maintaining the dignity of the people that they're serving. Um, and a ministry that, frankly, plays plays well with others. And if it's a healthy ministry, um, then give of your time, give of your resources, give of yourself to that. And um, I, I'm, if we did that, gosh, I just think Dallas has the potential to do so much good and be a place of um, real love and care for others. And so that's what I encourage people to do. And then the last thing I would say is if nobody's told you today that they love you, I do, but more importantly, God does. And if you come to St. Jude, you will hear that every Sunday. And so uh, just really do want people who are listening to this to know that God loves them dearly, dearly. And so he has made every one of us mission critical to his mission. And so get out there and serve him with all you've got. That's great. All right. We'll just leave it with that. I, I can't add anything to that. So <laughs> thanks, Nika. This has been awesome. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye, guys. Peace. Thank you.